The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the third chapter of Galatians. And while you're doing that, I'm going to give a few words of introduction. Have you ever heard anyone say to you regarding Christianity, well, you know, that's just a lot of, a lot of rules. It's just a lot of do's and don'ts. That's really all that is. That, you know, I, I, don't, I don't need that. I don't want that. Uh, and if you want to live that way, that's fine. But I, I don't need all that pressure. I don't need that guilt or whatever it may be. But that's the... The thrust of a position and argument, Christianity is just a lot of rules. It's a to-do list and a to-don't list. That's, that's all it is. You ever heard that? This is, unfortunately, this is an all-too-popular opinion in the world about Christianity. The only problem is it's completely wrong. And uh, most folks, I would argue, that hold that position either are uninformed or they've just never taken the time to truly investigate and research what Christianity is all about. Because an honest effort to look into Christianity and discover what it's all about will not lead you to that conclusion. Uh, but I, here, here's what I think. And, this, and, and this, is just, this is not part of the sermon. It's just my personal opinion about that subject. I think the reason why that opinion is popular, Christianity is just a, a lot of rules, is because there are far too many people in the world who are unwilling to be accountable for their own actions. There, there are too many people who don't want any structure and any responsibility, and they're content to just do whatever they want to do, whatever seems right to them, and no one can tell them they're wrong. And, the, and they don't want any consequences for anything they do. That's my opinion, my observation, what I believe is at the root of people trying to turn away from Christianity because that's their excuse. It's just do's and don'ts, it's just rules, and, and who needs somebody telling them uh, what they're to do and not to do, right? But there's only... One problem. Well, I say there's only one problem. There's lots of problems with that. But, but here's here's a problem. What have we been doing pretty much since we were born? Somebody's got to tell you what's right and what's wrong, right? You don't just get born and know all this stuff. Uh, funny story. I had a conversation 20 years ago with a lady in the church choir. We were talking about doing different music. You know, a little bit more. Uh, more recently written music, and, and uh, I said, you realize um, every song you know, you had to learn at some point. So every song you know was brand new to you at some point. And you know what she said? <laughs> no, I, I've always known Amazing Grace and How Great Thou Art. And she, she listed uh, her favorite hymns. I've always known those. Really? So you were like six weeks old and you were belting it out there in the hospital. So uh, uh, 
here's the, the problem with that. We always need direction. We always need somebody to point us to what's right. Because here's the dirty little secret. We don't need anybody to teach us what's wrong. We don't need anybody to show us how to be selfish. We don't need anybody to show us how to deceive or to lie or be dishonest. You know why? Because we are born sinful. Watch a child. Watch an infant who knows no better or, or no worse. How will they act? 100% selfish. It's all about them and what they need. Now, in the parent-child relationship, we are more than happy to provide that because that's a parent's responsibility. But if you take a child's behavior and isolate it, what do you see? Selfishness. I want this now, and I'm going to scream until I get it. Now, unfortunately, many people never seem to transition out of that way of thinking. There are 30, 40, 50-year-old adults who are still going to think it's all about them, and this is what I want, and I'm going to scream until I get it. If you don't believe me, turn on your television. Watch the news. Tell me I'm wrong. The good thing about the Bible is we have clear direction why, one, Christianity is not just a list of rules. The rules have their purpose, but it's not about that. We have a clear demonstration of what the function of the law is, how God relates to us, how we can live in uh, complete uh, peace and reconciliation and re relationship with God. And he shows us so clearly, and we just happen to be on that passage today. So if you'll follow along with me, we're going to be in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 15. And I'll read, the words will be on the screen as well if you want to follow along there, or you can follow along in your Bible Here's what Paul was inspired to write by the Spirit of God. Verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, 
whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would give us clear understanding of this word you put before us, and that as we understand, you would give us the strength to obey, so you would be glorified, and that we would be more like Jesus. It's in his name I ask, amen. Now this whole set of scriptures is really Three, well, two and a half paragraphs in the original text, if you want to be technical. But here's the thought here. There's a, a, a conflict of sorts, it seems, between the law and the promise of God. And the relationship between those two and what we're supposed to do with it. How are we supposed to understand all this word that, you know, God has been so gracious to put this, this wonderful book before us. And each word has a purpose. Each portion of Scripture has a purpose for our lives. And it's all beneficial to us. But we have to understand it right so we can understand the relationship we have to it. Right? We want to get the, we want to get the most out of God's Word possible. That's what we want. So the two parts of this particular passage today all fall into two uh, categories. And the first one we're going to consider is the permanence of the faith. So consider the permanence of the faith. In the first four verses of this passage, Paul gives us a, a nice picture. He uses a human example of the permanent nature of God's covenant, His covenant promises. So if you start in verse 15, he starts talking about this human covenant. So understand that to be uh, like a last will and testament. Okay, if If a person has a will, then it's once they sign it and it's witnessed and notarized and it's filed and it's on the record, you can't change it. You can't do anything about it. I was actually unfortunately involved in some litigation 25 years ago involving my mother's estate because some people didn't agree with the will and so they thought, they, well, we'll just sue somebody and we'll see if what we can get. And we had to, my sister and I had to go through that for, um, I want to say, 18 months of just having to deal with just nonsense, all because somebody wanted something that didn't belong to them. And so the, the will was properly executed, it was properly filed, and it said what it said. And you can't change that. And so ultimately, it was all dismissed because... We just kept going back to, we had to actually get a lawyer to say what we were saying. What's the will say? Just, just read the will. It's right there. But you can't change that. Once it's done, it's done. 
And so it can't be set aside, it can't be changed. So here's the, the thing that Paul's bringing up in human terms to relate to the spiritual conversation. If a man's last will and testament is respected by the law, and it is, how much more ought the testament of God be honored when he says, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed? That's what God said to Abraham, right? So Martin Luther actually brings up that point, the comparison of a man's will versus God's testament, his own promise. So what, what happened? Let's do a brief history lesson, very brief. God made a covenant promise to Abraham, right? It was spoken, and, and Paul brings this up, verse 16. He makes a big deal about this. The word seed is singular, referring to Jesus the Messiah. So if you were to go back, you can write this down if you want to. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. If you want to go back and read that verse, when God says to Abraham, the promise in you, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed... Paul makes a big deal about that promise to give the land of Canaan to Abraham and his seed. Not plural, singular. And so from that point, Paul is arguing here that ultimately this seed is referring to Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. Because if, you, if you'll recall, chapter 12 of Genesis is not the first time Jesus was mentioned. It was in chapter 3, verse 15, the very first mention of the Messiah, one who will come and reconcile all these things. That's called the, what they call in, in biblical terms the proto-euangelion, the very first evangelism, the first time there was a mention, and it was right after the fall. So if you want to write down Genesis 3.15, that's a, that's a big verse. That's when God says, I know, it, I know you've messed up, and I know things are bad, and, and you're going to suffer the consequences, but... It's not always going to be like that because I'm sending someone to handle it himself, God the Son. So from this verse, Paul argues in Galatians three sixteen to 19 that the true seed of Abraham is Christ. So here's the consequences for us. If we as believers belong to Jesus, then guess what that means? We are Abraham's seed. Because we are in Christ. And so that means, what does that mean? We're the inheritors of the covenant promise of God. Right? Because he said, all the nations of the world will be blessed in you. Now, does that mean just the Jews? He said, all the nations of the world will be blessed in you. And that's because who is God referred to constantly in the Old Testament? I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Right? So, if we as believers belong to Christ, when all is said and done, it's not the Jews who are Abraham's seed, but believers in Christ, so that the spiritual promises of the Old Testament will belong to us. And that's Paul's argument here. And then he goes on to talk about the law. He says in verse 17 that the law came 430 years after the promise to Abraham. Now, why does that matter? I know this seems like a lot of, like a historical type of thing, but what the point of it is, is this. If the law was not already in place when God promised Abraham, 
then how could the promise be based on that law? It came 430 years after the fact. So the law is not going to change what God has already spoken. The covenant promise to Abraham, therefore, is also unchanged. Do you recall? This is another good verse to write down. John chapter 19 and verse 30. Jesus was on the cross. And he uttered one Greek word. Tetelestai. It is finished. It is finished. Not, uh, I'll get back to this in a minute. Or, yeah, most of it's finished, but uh, I'll get, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll finish it up later. No, it is finished. It's done. That was his declaration from the cross. So, the writer to the Hebrews would play with this fact that this, this word that's used in this passage about this covenant, this promise, can mean a last will and testament. So, if you wanted to look at Hebrews chapter 9 around verse 15 and, and read that section, and you see our text before us today in Galatians 3, no last will and testament ever goes into effect until the person who wrote it dies. Do you know why Jesus had to die? It was to complete a process. It was to fulfill a plan that God had set in motion from before the foundation of the world. Jesus came for the purpose of dying for the sins of the world. And so when He said, it is finished, He knew very well what He was saying. He was saying, all the work is complete. I have fulfilled the redemptive story. I've paid the price for the sins of the world. And when he rose on the third day, everybody knew what that meant. Which is why, by the way, the religious establishment was trying so hard to keep it a secret. Because they knew also. Everybody knew what that meant. So the old covenant required a sacrificial death of an animal to put its terms into effect. But the, in the Old Testament times, sacrificial blood had to be shed every year. But Jesus, as the mediator of the new covenant, he died once for all. And it was sufficient. So his covenant is an everlasting covenant. So our inheritance is not based on the law, it's based on the promise of God. And it can't be both. Okay, if you want to have the law, you've got to have the law. If you want to have faith, you have faith. But you can't mix the two. Right? It's either one or the other. So our inheritance was given by God as an unconditional gift to everyone who believes. It's salvation. That's our inheritance. It's not given by the law. It's given by faith, which verse 18 makes very clear. It is uh, if it's based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And the Holy Spirit Himself is our deposit. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14, He's the down payment of the inheritance. So if you want to think about the permanence of faith relation, in, with relation to our salvation, faith came before the law and it existed after the law. What did Jesus say? In Matthew chapter 5, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but fulfill the law, right? He gave it its most true expression. So, 
We talk about the permanence of faith, but now we have to talk about the purpose of the law. Why do we have the purpose of the law? Why do we need to know that in relation to faith? So that's number two, if you're, if you're keeping track. The permanence of the faith, the purpose of the law. Why did we even have it? The Bible says in verse 19, it was added. That means it was not part of the original covenant with Abraham. But why was it added? Well, the Bible says it was added because of transgressions. So what did Paul write in Romans 7? I would not have ever come to know my sin if it wasn't for the law. Right? Something had to, some rule had to show me what I'd done wrong. I was still doing the wrong, but I didn't know what it was. So through angels by the hand of a mediator. So you have angels, God in his presence on Mount Sinai gives the law to Moses. Moses gives it to the people. Right? So until the seed had come, the law was there. After Christ came, the law was no longer needed. So you can also see verse 16. Christ is the seed. So the Bible says in verse 19, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. That means until Jesus got here, we needed some help. right? We needed some assistance, something to help us and show us where we needed to go. Martin Luther says the law is an usher to lead the way to grace. Ultimately, that's where we're headed. It was never meant to be permanent. The law was, was there for a purpose, but it was a temporary purpose. So here's the question that Paul asks, verse 21. Is there conflict between God's law and God's promises? Because if there is, that would be a problem, right? If there's conflict between anything God says and what he does, that's, that's an issue, Right? And then everybody will say, well, see, God's not even consistent with himself, so that means there's something wrong there. He, maybe he's not God after all. But here's the point. There is no conflict. It was never the purpose of the law to give life. Do you know what the purpose of the law was? It was to show us our guilt. It was to point out some things to us very clearly that maybe we would not have noticed otherwise. The Bible says everyone, literally it says everything is trapped under the dominion of sin which is shown clearly through the law. If you were to go and flip over to Romans chapter 3 and start at verse 10, you know what you would read? There is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one who does good. There is no one who seeks after God. All of us together have become worthless. And on and on and on. Quoting the Old Testament. The point is, you and I, we can't do right on our own. We can't do enough good for enough time to be good before God. And that's the purpose of the law. Let me show you, God said. You think you can make it on your own? You think you got a better plan than I do? I mean, I don't know what my, what my, um, my uh, resume would say about that. I mean, all I did was, you know, create everything. And, and so it's my creation, my universe that I've created. And I am omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient and all-powerful and almighty. But, you know, don't take my word for it. Here's the law. Try, try that on for size. So, you know what we did? 
We, meaning all the Old Testament characters, we tried. <laughs> we tried. And it didn't take very long. Oh, missed one there in the next hour. Oh, I missed another one. Uh, man, this is harder than I thought. Then you start looking at the law, reading God's Word. Oh, we got to do all that? Why do we have to do it exactly that way? God says, oh, well, you wanted the law. You wanted some rules. Here they are. So, um, you know, keep trying. Do your best. How's it going? How's that going for us? Not very good. You ever tried to um, just for one day, for one, not even 24 hours, for one waking day. Let's say you get up at 6 in the morning. So you go to sleep at 10 o'clock that night. Right? So that would mean you slept 8 hours. So that means only 16 hours in a, in a waking day. You ever tried to not sin for 16 hours straight? How'd that go for you? Now, and, and before you think, well, I don't know, maybe I might could do that. Okay, so that right there was pride, so there's, there, kill that. Um, how about this? Oh, no, I've done that before, really? Okay, so that's a lie, so they missed that. Um, how about this? It's not just our actions. It's not just our words. It's our thoughts. It's not just our thoughts. It's our heart. The good man brings forth good things out of the good stored up in his heart. But the evil man brings forth evil things from the evil stored up in his heart. See... We are sinners by nature. It's not what we do. It's who we are. We can't make it without Jesus. It's, it's just that simple. And Paul is trying his best with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit flowing through him, writing these words for us to say, no, there's no conflict between God's law and God's promises. When people recognize their captivity under the power of sin and they give up their attempts to please God on their own, then the way is now prepared for them to receive the promise of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how it was always meant to be. What does Hebrews chapter 11 and Romans say about Abraham? He believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He had faith in God. So what we're seeing here in this text is the law was a protective measure for God's people. We were in the custody of the law until faith would be later revealed. What, what does that mean, custody? You know what the, uh, the Federal Witness Protection Program is? That means when someone has some valuable information that they need to share with a court of law and their life might be in danger because somebody doesn't want them to share that, then they're put in this program, the Witness Protection Program. That means they get a new name, they get a new address, they get moved away in secrecy. Nobody knows who they are or where they are so that they can provide the testimony necessary for this whatever court case, and then they won't suffer any harm to them or their family based on what they had to say, right, their testimony. 
So what would happen if that was revealed? It would change everything, right? So they had to be kept in custody until uh, their testimony could be revealed. Well, we, if we are trusting in God, we are kept in custody, verse 23 says, under the law, being shut up or closed off to the faith which was later to be revealed. So the law has become our tutor. Now, you know what a tutor is? Anybody got a subject in school you struggle with? Why are you smiling, Cooper? I don't understand. (laughs) So a a tutor is there to help. Maybe somebody who's skilled in a certain area, and maybe I struggle with it, so I need them to come alongside me and teach me some things. You know what the word actually means, the literal translation? Child conductor. Isn't that interesting? So I'm going to take, you're you're, you're a child, you need some help, you need some assistance, so I'm going to take you by the hand. And I'm going to usher you into where you need to go. So the law is serving that purpose for those who are trusting in the Lord. So faith in Christ delivers believers from the prison of the law to the promised land of faith. So you understand what that means? Martin Luther said it pretty well. He said, when the law is properly used... Its value cannot be too highly appraised. It will take me to Christ every time. That's the purpose of the law. Is Christianity a lot of rules, a lot of do's and don'ts? Yeah, depends on how you look at it. Maybe. But what's the purpose of it? It's to demonstrate some things. Maybe this is a good way to close. The farther we read into Galatians the more clear this truth is going to become. Paul keeps adding more and more to this story. We were never meant to be justified by the law. That was never the intention. It was always meant to be by grace through faith that were made right in the eyes of God. Paul would write to the Ephesian churches one of the most quoted verses in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Right? Remember what it says? For it's by grace you've been saved, through faith. Not by yourselves, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. So no one can boast. We didn't do it. God did it. We couldn't do it. God's ability was never in question. We needed the law to show us some things. The law clearly demonstrates our need for a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I I know what you may have heard or maybe you've said it. I've said um, at least one of these things back in my youth. My foolish youth. You don't have to do good things to be saved or to be right with God. True. Here's the one I I always told my, my dad. You know, you don't have to go to church to be saved or to be right with God. Again, true. What's the rest of that story, though? 
If I'm right with God, I'm going to want to do some good things. If I'm right with God, I'm going to want to be in church. My favorite preacher, Johnny Hunt. I don't have to go to church. Thank God I get to go to church. Do you know how many people would sacrifice most of what they have, which would probably be not much, just for the privilege to walk into a free assembly of believers like this one and worship Jesus. The former president of the International Mission Board, who's a a pastor at heart, he's a pastor again now, David Platt, he went on a mission trip some years ago to a part of India, somewhere in India. And he was there to disciple some believers that were there in these areas. And you know, more than half of those believers, as he reported from his time there, walked more than 12 hours just to get to where he was so they could hear the Bible taught to them. And when they got there, he taught through the night more than 17 hours because once they got there, they wanted every little bit they could get And sometimes, when our gathering reaches an hour long, we start looking at our watch. Because we got other things to do that are more important than the Word of God. That's a shame. The only way I can be saved is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org. 